Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unsound on Sound Sampler. In this first excerpt, we hear my discussion with disabled musicologist Annie Castillo. We discuss my string quartet, Bloodwork, which uses my whole life's bloodwork as pitch material for a string quartet. What I thought was sort of fun about kidney data, <laughs> well, any kind of medical data, is that it gives you these numbers that are very specific and they say something very real about you, right? Like, it's very personal and it's very precise, but it's also very meaningless, right? If I told you my creat means 232 or whatever, people would be like, okay, right? So. I thought this was an interesting sort of paradox and in, in sort of a good metaphor for the whole idea of like writing music about yourself or about your experiences where we, we put out information um, and supposedly that just translated into the music somewhere, but ultimately, you know, who's, who's really learning anything? So you don't think it's important for the audience to know that this is the measure of your creatinine levels and that the viola is like your creatinine and the other players are other points in your blood work? The other players are not other points in my blood work. I think, you know, it's fun. People would be, they think the rest of the piece is just free, free association, basically. Um, no, it's important that they know that, but the point is, is that it doesn't really tell them anything, right? Like, what do you know? What, what, what does my blood work really tell you, ultimately? What is, and, and just like this whole idea where, like, you, as, a, as a disabled person, one may feel some uh, effort or obligation to put one di one's disability into one's art, but... Um, I can't really tell you anything about it through the artistic medium that couldn't be better served by just, like, asking me questions and then uh, believing me when I say things about my own experience, you know what I mean? Why do I have to make it into a string quartet? And yet, I do, because that's how it works when you're a composer, weirdly enough. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I mean, I understand why you think that, like, you have to do this because you're disabled, but also, like, isn't it important in terms of, especially in the world of, like, classical music, it's so inaccessible. Like, I would, when I was trying to find stuff for this podcast to talk about, as you know, I wanted to talk about, like, a disabled composer, because I'm also disabled. It's true. But it was so, like, One, okay, here's a question for the audience when we're listening right now. One of us has diabetes. <laughs> and it's not... It's not me. Yeah, that's true. It's me. But it was so hard to find stuff. Do you like, want to make any sort of, you know, because some people out there might be going like, oh, she must be old. She must have type 2 diabetes. She must be one of those old people who get diabetes because of their diet. So I have type 1 diabetes. <laughs> Thank you, James. Um, which is an autoimmune disorder where your body, I guess much like your body, where it was just like, I don't want to help you out anymore. An autoimmune disorder, so you're not allowed to touch cars? <laughs> Wouldn't that mean 
that I am allowed to touch cars because cars can't hurt me. What if it meant that like cars could not transport you anywhere? What if it meant that it wouldn't matter if I got in a car crash because I was automatically immune? You were autoimmune. <laughs> but it's a disorder. So it, oh, people yeah. are like, why isn't she dead? They're disappointed. No, it's just a disorder like your body is in the wrong alignment. So like, it's in the wrong alignment, but it gives me immunity to cars. That's cool. In this next excerpt, composer Becca Sims and I discuss a very nice section of Professor Bad Trip, part two by Romatelli. Either a root or something very pleasant in the bass line. And then that whole second section, they, he, he just adds more and more to this sort of pretty traditional sort of rock uh, four chord thing that he's doing. But it, it's to me that that's, that's a wonderful moment. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm looking at it right here. It's um, it's like it's labeled as Roman numeral two. Yes, like it's, like the, it's like the second section, you know. Yeah. I find the sense of tension and release in this piece really exciting in general. Like after stuff gets really intense and hazy and and distorted, you get these moments of of clarity that are just like so welcome to your ear. And this is a great example after the first cadenza. After the second cadenza as well, you get into like a really simple rhythmic language with a descending line in the piano. Uh, in my opinion, I think the second time around, it, it goes away a little too quickly and, and goes back into chaos. Um, and maybe, you know, I'm getting older and I'm getting more curmudgeon but in general, like these these sections where you have really clear, like these um, were in 4-4 four, four, and you just like quarter note, half note, quarter note. Like I... I apparently love this shit now. Like I used to always want more and more rhythmic com- complexity and and to have like the sense of meter and time um, obscured in some way. But when it's obscured for a long time and then you come to these moments, it's just oh my god! I just I want to luxuriate in them for, for for forever. And sometimes it's sort of snatched away from us in this piece. Although considering the the cheeky nature of it, I'm sure that was probably intended. You know. <laughs> Now, in this final excerpt, I talk to cellist extraordinaire Amal Arulanandam. We discuss his love of heavy metal music, uh, the terms new music and Western classical music, and what the heck we're supposed to call this stuff, and some shady opinions of mine about the contemporary classical guitar world. Yeah, when I was in um, seventh grade, I think, my friend's brother gave me... Friend's older brother gave me a mix CD with like a bunch of Euro metal stuff, like some Blind Guardian, Vader, um, some American bands like Cannibal Corpse, like a bunch of stuff like that. Oh and yeah, me, I remember like, them. I remember from grade seven to it. Some weird friend of mine was like, "Check this check out." This put out. on the Cannibal Corpse. I had no idea what I was listening. Exactly, to. and I, I was definitely like, I was scared of it, but I would listen to it and feel guilty for listening to it. But that, I mean, maybe <laughs> that was part of it for me. Um, that didn't last very long, the guilt part. I eventually was like, yeah, whatever. This is just what I'm into now. But um, I think that was my first real musical love before even like Western, for lack of a better term, I don't know. I'm not really sure what else to call it. Western art music. Um, it's all art music, but I guess that's what we have decided to call uh, Western classical or like mo- modern Western classical. 
The terms are a problem, and to be honest, I have not, like, I've been thinking about it for years now, and I still haven't come up with better terms for it, really. Like, contemporary classical music sounds ridiculous. New music, like, it's the only music that's new. I, I don't know what to do about it. Uh, as you say, art music is problematic. Western classical music might be the most accurate, but it's a little... And even now, that's like that's not entirely accurate because you have so many composers um, writing music for like more Western-based ensembles that aren't necessarily from a traditionally Western music background, and they're incorporating a lot of their own culture into their composition while using Western notation, and like so, you can't really call or that not. Western classical. Yeah, no, it's it's. Um... It's hard, be, but and also because it's focused in academia, everybody's worried about defining things exactly correctly. Right. <laughs> I mean, I find that also bleeds into performance too, right? People are so concerned about performance practice and just doing things a certain way that people are afraid to take risks or, or go against the grain in performing. Even like traditional repertoire like classical repertoire um you don't really have those unique like idiosyncratic performers anymore at least and if you do people criticize them to no end it's like it's it's kind of bizarre totally to i come out of the world of classical guitar and that's been really interesting because it's sort of been folded into the world of academia during my lifetime in a way and there used to be every guitarist would have their own style. Some t people's technique would it, it would be totally different, right? They'd be using a totally different hand motion to produce the notes. And now everybody sort of sounds the same 20 years later. And I think I think it is bad. The quality of playing has no doubt increased and there's more competent classical guitarists than there was 20 years ago. But who cares if people aren't given the opportunity to become stars and gain that charisma around doing things their own way. So that's it. That's my 10-minute little intro to my podcast. Feel free to check out these episodes, my bonus episode on uh, music and disability, uh, my episode about Professor Bad Trip with Becca Sims, and my episode with uh, Amal Everlanandam about uh, the piece Heist 2.0. Or check out the other ones. They're all good. Okay, well, have a good day. Yeah.